While this podcast contains little to no explicit material, it is sprinkled with some uncensored swears. Listener discretion is advised. everyone the omniplex is open uh we're your hosts i am i am albert i'm austin i'm zephyr welcome so what were we talking about today we are visiting the little shop of horrors in all its in all its forms yeah and there's more than you would expect yeah yeah <laughs> and i think i think zephyr you took the brunt of it for us mm-hmm yeah. <laughs> and uh I, I mean we'll get there when we get there but uh we will not so much the the, the broadway play but the movies yeah the roger corman classic and the frank oz classic which i forgot for a hot minute that frank oz directed films even yeah um yeah that was actually kind of one of the reasons that it took me a long time to watch this one until just before this cast like i actually just watched yeah. this friday really yeah i'd seen bits and pieces of it but i really don't like frank oz as a director i think he shoots everything with a very with the very same it's a day glow everything's bright everything is played to the rapture style and what really turned me off of him was i saw bowfinger and i enjoyed it i think it's a film that's worth seeking out but then i read the steve martin script and i was like this thing deserved to be handled so much more nimbly than it was and like it needed to be a sniper rifle and it was an uzi on the film and i just oz has that style however that said that was the perfect style for this movie so yes it is it's like i think we're mostly gonna talk about like the uh the 80s musical right yeah yeah i thought so because i haven't seen the corman film i did just before it's um I think the only thing to be really be said about it is it's the exact same plot. Um, you can tell the places where the latter musical version uh, smoothed out everything a little bit to where it's not so haphazard. Mm-hmm. And of course, it has some notable, like you know, it's Roger Corman and Dick Miller is in it. Of and course, he is. Yeah, he's recognizable at any age. He looks exactly the same as he did in 1960 as he did in the 80s and 90s except for like uh maybe a few less wrinkles yeah and uh jack nicholson let's not yes. forget him of course and he did not play the part i expected i thought he played like the the seymour part but nope no he plays jack nicholson yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
just He's completely a... unhinged. Exactly, which is perfect. That's 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 what he does best. Unhinged baby face. We're still yeah. gonna have to get to as good as it gets some point. We we we're gonna have to. We will. Oh we god, will. that's this quintessential part. Especially because if we're gonna talk about movies that don't act that don't mishandle mental illness, that's that's one we're gonna have to get to because it gets it so right. But we're getting off track. Uh, it's yeah. Um, the eighties musical is the one that I think most people know. It's it's the one that's endured the most. I think the sixties film. It's most notable, of course, for the fact that it had a really fast shoot. They cranked it out, and it's mem- it's remembered. But, I mean, that 80s musical, that thing was... It wasn't a huge hit. It was a modest performer, but it's had legs. And also one of the craziest productions we're ever going to talk about. Um, just to be clear, my analysis of things is this was about as disastrous a production as Cool World. Really? Yeah. Zephyr, huh. would you agree with me on that? Um, given what came, given what came at the end, is what I'm thinking of, because it uh, you know, okay. shot Get, smoothly. Yeah, at, at the end, yeah, that was a bit of a disaster, but that I wouldn't put it at cool world level. Okay, maybe not. That that's a little too harsh of yeah of a comparison. Especially it, because this, especially this actually works. That's that's the big difference. Yeah, so uh, do we want to give a brief summary of the film? Let's do that. Just, just knock that out. So basically, uh, Seymour, Seymour Krellborn. You know what? I get Krellborn. Yeah, I get that and Malcolm in the Middle mixed up. But yeah, Seymour Krellborn uh, works in a plant shop on Skid Row, which is a really run-down part of you know, any... Me- any major metropolis USA. The film portrays it very grimy and I love it. His plant shop is failing because it's on Skid Row. And so he has in his possession a, uh, like he likes to collect weird plants. So he has in his possession what he dubs the Audrey two or Audrey junior in the original, you know, after the woman that he loves also works in the plant shop. You know, they say, I suddenly have this idea. It's like, we're not doing so well in this shop. So, Hey, Seymour, why don't you bring up that weird plant? It might attract some business. And, uh, it does like immediately. And so, uh, the unfortunate thing is that it is sickly. You know, he's doing all the different things he can to get it to, uh, to thrive. It's not working until he accidentally pricks himself with a finger. And, uh, then the plant does the and uh, feeds it blood. This sentient plant that eventually talks to him and tells him, "Hey, like enough of this blood shit. I need uh, I need you to murder people and feed them to me." And thus the plot kind of spirals from there. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, that's about the long and short of it. And uh, both versions uh, have. Again, the same plot, except they kind of connected um, a few loose things. Like, the dentist was not... Like, Audrey was not dating the dentist in the original. So they connected those two things. And uh, gave Seymour a little more motivation than just, like, he accidentally kills him with a drill in the original. Yeah. Uh, and then works on the, the, the 
Jack Nicholson character himself. There's a few more other loose things that they all kind of smoothly tie together, which I kind of like. Like, they completely eliminated Seymour's mother in the 80s version, which, that's actually a blessing in disguise. It is. Yeah. She's, she's, a, she's a very ancillary character. Like, he lives, I think he, in the 80s version, he lives in the basement of the shop. Yes. Yeah, because he is an orphan, essentially. Which they did cut. They did cut a few things from the musical, but, you know, that's to be expected from a movie version of a musical. Like, all of them do that. And uh, specifically the part where uh, uh, Mr. Mushnik adopts him. Yeah. <laughs> Which didn't need to be in there. At, at this point, I, I would like to ask how each of us was introduced to this particular version of the uh of the property whether it was like the actual stage musical or the film itself i mean as i said i hadn't seen the film until just this friday in full but i'd seen parts of it here and there it's one of those things it's in the pop culture lexicon so even if you haven't seen it you've absorbed pieces of it in some way so that's kind of that's how i came to it was it was in the lexicon um, for me, it was piecemeal. There's a few different things. Of course, part of it's seeing seeing the cover in video stores way, way back when. Uh, and going, huh? <laughs> and of course, seeing, uh, you know, I remember my first introduction to the fact that it was a musical was uh, seeing ads for it uh, when it came to local theater. And, you know, they did the the, the theme, and uh, they played the theme. It's like, oh, I did not know it was a musical comedy. I thought it was just straight horror. And then I saw the original movie kind of piecemeal when I worked at McDonald's, you know, on late night, and they still had TV in the back room, and it was, on, it was playing on PBS. Uh, and I say piecemeal because, obviously, I was called away to help customers. But uh, I saw most of it that way. And then... Around 2011, 2012, it was one of the movies I decided to kind of pick it up from rent or library or wherever. Uh, and I watched it on DVD when I was wrapping presents one year. So yeah, I sure remember. I sure remember you messaging me about that. Yeah, yeah. It would have been around uh, the early years of us knowing each other. Yeah, yeah. I actually have a distinct memory of that. Mm-hmm. so i have i hadn't seen it since since today and there's a lot i forgot so i'm glad i refreshed uh but yeah that was my that was my intro uh for me i i guess it would be back uh i want to say like it was either eighth grade or so that my dad actually took me to a a local production of it cool. at oh, one of our theaters nice. Yeah, I know, kind of surprising, but like, uh, like he, it was a like a nighttime showing, and I really didn't know what to expect other than he was taking me to this musical called Little Shop of Horrors, and you know, just watching the, you know, the musical pan out with all of its weird eccentric activities and characters and and then with the ending with 
the plants and the vines coming down from the ceiling like that was yeah yeah that was great and then i didn't see uh or at least revisit the property until i want to say a few years ago when i went to a like a university production of it with a couple of friends who brought their kids like parents would bring like their young kids along for for this musical which i'm i'm still trying to wrap my head around that for reasons <laughs> we'll get into <laughs> yeah but and then i didn't get around to uh the 80s movie until I want to say 2014, 2015, with the uh, with the director's cut. Yeah, and it wasn't until uh, preparation for this cast that I saw not just the Corman production, but also the original cut, and then seeing the differences between the two. And oh boy, it's yeah, yeah. it's yeah, amazing. So, Oh yeah, it, it's fantastic. So that's my history with uh, Little Shop. We should give just some quick background on the musical because it's sort of a, it's sort of a hard to imagine the late '80s as we know them, uh, late '80s, early '90s without this musical for a variety of reasons. Because this was actually kind of ground zero for a lot of stuff, you know. Namely, this was where Mencken and Ashman exploded yeah yeah. which i didn't know they worked on the music for that which was both a surprise and not a surprise at the same time because it's really good Mm -hmm. yeah of course Minkin and ashman are best known as the composers for little mermaid and beauty and the beast and parts of aladdin uh, with tim rice having to come in to finish out after ashman's death uh did Ashman write the original book for the musical? Uh, Ashman lyrics and book. Yeah, because nice. I know he, I know he wrote the screenplay for the movie. Um, I think this is his own. I think this is his only screenplay credit. Uh, it, it's a damn good one. If you're going to have one, it's a good one. Nice. Now I have a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, in musical plays, like stage musical plays. They say book, that means like basically the script, right? Yeah. Yeah, basically the script. And then obviously the music and lyrics are separate from that. But but yes, the book is the script. Okay, I was never clear on that. And it's it's definitely helped that the same lyricist wrote the, wrote the lyrics because it gives everything a uniform voice. Uh, you'll see musicals where that's not the case, and it's a little distracting, honestly. You know, this this musical uh, it was an off-Broadway hit. Uh, I don't know if it ever got a Broadway run. Um, I'm looking. I'm looking. Uh, yeah, the, the movie uh, references it being off-Broadway. Yeah. Like at, in the uh, in the end credits... Okay, the mu- the musical made its Broadway debut at the Virginia Theater on October second, two thousand three. Wow, wow, yeah, yes. A... So it it got there, it got there, it got there sixteen years, 
something 16 like years that. after this movie so yeah and uh it wasn't until august 2004 that we got a u.s national tour of the broadway production with uh anthony rapp as seymour oh damn that's really good casting yeah i'm not a huge rent fan but rap's a really great comic actor that's that's fantastic casting yeah does that, another question I had? Does that, does everybody do their own singing in the movie? Um, because it sounds like Rick Moranis's voice, and while he's not like you know uh, Broadway level, like he's he's decent. I mean, it just kind of hit me at one point watching it. Like, I wonder yeah. if that's actually. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it was. Uh, it it it's very what you consider like an actor singing um yeah now i know that ellen green was in the original uh, off-broadway production Correct. yeah she's a carryover and can i just pause to say that she is an absolute thing of art in this movie my god what uh drew mcweeney uh in an episode of 80s all over nailed it when he said she's an alien she doesn't seem to be from this planet she is in her own little world He's talking about her and something else, but that's absolutely who she is here. And she's just a dynamo in it. Uh, she's just so giving this strange, weird take on a very standard trope. But it's just, it's incredible. It, yeah, it really is incredible. And uh, Rick Moranis was actually the first and only choice to play Seymour. Good. I can... I can see that. I can see that because, yeah. But let's pause right now. This since we're in this area, let's talk about the cast of this movie because this movie has a cast. It's just when you list this cast, you kind of understand why this movie kind of had to work. Um, Rick Moranis. This is one of his very few starring roles. He. It's surprising how few starring roles he's actually gotten. Um, it's true. There's this. There's uh, there's uh, Honey I Shrunk the Kids movies. Which of which he's not really the main emotional lead in those films. Yeah, as far as I remember, um, and that's it. There's a couple of other small films, uh, Big Bully uh, with Tom Arnold, and I guess you could count him. But he's more often a co-lead, and of course, very famously in the 2000s, he took he just quit Hollywood. Um, famously, his wife died. He stepped away. He stepped away to raise his kids. He just left. And what he realized was when he took a break, he didn't want to come back. He had enough money. Um, oh, also Strange Brew. We have to note Strange Brew, of course, as one of the very few leads, of course, um, from his SCTV work. But he's, he's really great here. And uh, he is slowly inching back uh, towards film. He didn't. He participated in an SCTV reunion and uh, the Disney Plus reboot of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which for a reboot is bringing back a shocking amount of the original talent. I didn't know it existed until this very moment. They're they're doing a new movie. Awesome. Uh, it will probably be a Disney Plus. Uh, Moranis will be back um, reprising his role. Uh, Josh Gad will play his son in it. And the really cool thing yeah. is Joe Johnston is coming back uh, to direct. Joe Johnston is going to direct it. So that's coming. Good. 
which I know he directed the original, but that was his first film. That was his first film. Um, that's awesome. So yeah, Moranis, this was, and this was between the two Ghostbusters movies for him. He's really good here. Um, then, you know, as I said, Ellen Green is fantastic. Um, this movie is basically a who's who of eighties comedy, the best of the best. Even the cameos, even the cameos, especially the cameos. Cause you've got John Candy in a quick one scene. That is just amazing. It's, you could do an entire list. You could do an entire podcast on movies where John Candy just blazes in, did a day's worth of work and controls the film. This home alone rookie of the year movies where he just shows up and is an just a madman. He's great in this. Um, then you've got Christopher Guest has a quick scene that is unforgettable because uh, he plays the customer who's in awe of Audrey. And <laughs> again, Guest seems to be in an entirely, I don't want to say another film because everybody in this film is actually pretty much on the same note, but he just comes in and steals his scene. It, I, I will point out that uh at least listening to uh, the commentary for the film, uh, Frank Oz actually had to do a number of takes for a guest scene because guest was playing uh, just kind of like a casual version instead of this cartoonish portrayal that you, you get within the film proper. It works so damn well. Um, Oddly enough, two of the doo-wop girls in the chorus would go on to become uh, sitcom staples. Uh, Tachina Arnold and Tisha Campbell have both been mainstays of sitcoms uh, over the last few decades. Of course, then there's the, the big ones. Um, Bill Murray shows up as as a sad- as a masochist who is obsessed with dental torture, and it's just amazing because this is the only time he ever worked with Steve goddamn Steve Martin. Martin. Yeah. Holy shit. Also should be noted that he plays, uh, uh, from the original, what would be the Jack Nicholson part. And, uh, it's a great match. If you're, yeah, if you're going to match Nicholson, Murray is the guy to do it. Um, Steve Martin in this thing is, I, I'm a huge Steve Martin fan, uh, clearly, by my comments on his scripting. Uh, and, man, in the 1980s, he was really kind of a one-of-a-kind one star that we had because he was doing the really silly, goofy comedies, and he would later do probably one of Oz's best films, uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. He would work with him on that. And then, but he also had this very classic leading man style you know, he he was believable as a lead. He was believable at projecting menace. It's funny because he's not in this film very long. He's really not. But his number is so memorable that when there's talk of a remake, one of the first questions everybody has is who's going to get that part. Unfortunately, we will have to talk about the remake at the end of the cast. Um, but it's just one of those things. Everybody in this movie is just there firing in this thing. And then, of course, Levi Stubbs from The Four Tops uh, is Audrey, too, and he's amazing. He's amazing. That deep bass voice. Holy shit, he's cool. Um, 
this movie, it's just a really good black comedy. That's one of the things I really had, that I really took away from it is this is a, it's a very barbed black comedy. Um, it does not look at uh, poverty with any romance at all. No, nope. n- not at all. It is ugly. Like one of the things that came to mind, and at least in prepping for this, uh, comparing uh, the number Skid Row, the like sort of the setup of hey, we're all living in an absolute shithole in this part of the city, and comparing that to more or less the premise of You're in Town, the musical, another off-Broadway black comedy. Yeah. yeah. And I'm just like, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> this is, it's, it's almost the anti-rant in that it's like, look, being poor sucks, and what the hell is wrong with you for romanticizing this? <laughs> exactly. Also, the music in this is so much better than rant. Yeah. Yeah. Hot take. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, the music in this is the music in this is instantly iconic. Uh, you're instantly humming along with all of it. Yeah, I I still have the Skid Row song stuck in my head. Ah, that number is, and that's what that's what I think Oz is really fantastic at. I don't know why he hasn't done more musicals because he gets this. He gets the you know he really tried to keep it very artificial. Very mm-hmm. stagey. You can't miss this. Was shot yes. on uh, lots. Uh, this was shot uh, actually famously on the uh, Pinewood uh, 007 set, as they call it. Yeah, oh, nice. Yeah, yep. yeah. I did. I did catch that. You now, even the the parts that are very much supposed to take place outdoors, you can tell, and uh, I applaud that because for uh, a, I think it feels like he was trying to like recapture like you know stage play but this is a film so we can do more yeah right there's a lot of really great long camera takes in this thing that are just pretty there are the transitions are probably the best like the uh like you see shot of outer space beginning and then oh it's a puddle it's a grimy grimy puddle and there's a there's a wrapped up uh, champagne bottle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, all yeah, of that. That's a great setup. Yeah, all of the transitions in this are really uh, beautiful, especially in uh, somewhere that's green. Because what a mo- what a number that is. Um, I'm kind of pissed that I'm gonna have have to ruin that moment by talking yeah. about something connected to it. But let's first note that. Green's performance of it is so beautiful. It's so poignant. It captures the agony of being a woman who doesn't believe her life can ever get better, who doesn't believe that everything will be better, and who just has the simplest, most innocent dreams for her life. And she's an abuse victim, and all she wants is just a normal life with a decent person. That is a heartbreaking, beautiful number. God damn you, Family Guy, for being for using that number the way that you did on your show. What um, What did they do? They lift it entirely, shot for shot, shot for really? shot. There is, it is an exact, complete match that they do of a lift of it. 
Oh God! For an episode, and it's a pedophile singing it to uh, Chris. Oh, is it the old old man? Yeah. Yep, Herbert oh, the pervert. No. A character I already hate just because why is that funny? And the sad part is, Mike Henry actually does a really beautiful job with it, bizarrely enough. Like, oh. bizarrely enough, he gets the same notes, but it's so disgusting that you're uh-huh. like, this isn't funny! Mm-mm. And also, it's lazy, because you're literally giving four minutes of your show to somebody else's work. Mm-hmm. Come on. Yeah, no, that's gross. That's yeah. I hope they idea. pay thoroughly for that. Like, somewhere that screen is a rather interesting example of the uh, I want song in in all types of musicals. Because, like, this isn't... Like, the the dream at the end is just to be in a conformed suburban house living that manufactured american dream that's which everything artificial yeah everything is artificial and very fake right down to like the stripes in the lawn plastic in the furniture yep the tupperware parties yeah the tv dinners the howdy doody and and everything it's so artificial but within context, it's literally, you know, it's Eden for Audrey because of what she's in. Yeah, in both setting and in uh, relationship. Yeah. I mean, this is some seriously, it's funny because everything is so light in tone in this, but it's really some dark shit. Ooh, ooh I hit on it. I hit on it. Uh, so she basically... She wants, like, Skid Row is extremely grimy and real, and she wants something a little less real. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very... I mean, hell, they even do an animated bird at one point. <laughs> they do. It's, it's, that kind of, it's that kind of image. And, uh-huh. and it, it speaks to how... There is some serious shit going on underneath the hood here. There's the bit where the doo-wop girls are screamed at, you know, go to school. And they're like, why should we? Our lives aren't going to get better. We work a split shift. We went to school till fifth grade, then we split. And then, okay, you know, they're all named after girl groups. And then you think to yourself, okay, maybe we didn't know it in the 80s, but good God, there was some sick shit going on behind the scenes with those. A lot of exploitation. When one of you is named after a, uh, you know, one of Phil Spector's groups, you know, or I, don't, I may be wrong about that. The point is, it's there was some really dark stuff there, and the movie isn't letting you ignore all that, but it's funny that it's then contrasted with the very cartoony violence that's there, and I don't think you're, I don't think you're supposed to come away from it forgetting, hey, this is all fun and games, but there's some real stuff that we've got to think about here, and. It's effective. It's funny that I came away from Little Shop of Horrors thinking more about political stuff than I did Rent. <laughs> but that's true. There you go. That's what that's what a good piece does. We started off not having Frank Oz directing it. This was almost a Scorsese picture. Was it really? Yeah. 
which isn't that weird when you consider that in 1987, man, he would have done anything to get work. It was the 1980s for Scorsese are as bad as it's ever been for a director without it really actually being all that bad. Because if you actually look at his 80s output, all of it's classic. Yeah, got some good stuff in there. Got After Hours. Which got, is perfect. Uh, Raging Bull. Raging Bull, uh, King of Comedy. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, the problem is, all of these movies made him unemployable. Nobody wanted to work with him. Uh, Last Temptation could have killed his career if Goodfellas wasn't his next movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, Goodfellas basically set the next 30 years for him, so... Not all bad, not all bad, but this is, wow. I mean, the thing is, I think he would have done fine with it, but it also would have kept him from doing Last Temptation when he did, and he needed to get that out of his system. Mm-hmm. And again, I just think Oz was a good fit for this. I think every director has one film that they're meant to do. This is his pain and gain. <laughs> That's a good deep cut there. Yeah. It's a movie I love. We'll need to talk about that at some point, too. It's oh, a wonderful film. But I haven't seen it, but I'm very it's curious. Stellar. It's stellar. Um, but, like, yeah. It, this was also, of course, David Geffen's, one of his very few runs into film. Geffen had a bit of a film career as a producer, but not much. Like his, his output is limited. He did get involved in the DreamWorks calamity, but that's really you have to read books on that to understand what a calamity that was. That was a movie studio nobody wanted to be involved in. There's a reason that, like, by um, under ten years into its existence, it was gone. The DreamWorks. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, it folded a lot faster than the animation studio has lasted, but the Studio Studio did not, yeah. Oh, see, I didn't, I didn't realize that. There's a, there's an excellent book on this, uh, the men who would be king. Yeah, now that, I, now that I think of it, I think the only DreamWorks live action picture I remember is like Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, this, you know, of course, we're talking around Audrey too and all that because it's all bound up in the ending. So, can we just talk about the ending? Because there's not much more to say about the film beyond, it's good, watch it. But what happened with the ending is legendary. And it took a long time to get fixed. The long and short of it is, test audiences hated the original ending, and they had to change 23 minutes of the movie. Well, when we say the original ending, it's the original ending of the musical. Of the musical. It's the original ending of the musical, and it was the original ending of the film. More or less. Am I correct? Uh, yeah, basically. So what we ended up with for the theatrical cut, as well as the home video cut for a good period of time, the long and short of it is, like Austin said, the test audiences really did not like the uh, ending of the original musical, and Frank Oz and company was forced to redo the ending in its entirety 
so that audiences could walk away happy because our heroes, you know, they fought the villain. Yes, they triumph. They fight the villain. They win. Evil is 99% defeated. And we, you know, we get our heroes living somewhere that's green. Now, while film critics at the time widely praised the film, it was those critics that had seen the off-Broadway uh, production, they noted the difference in their reviews and how it's more or less a, uh, I don't want to say betrayal, but that's kind of what it is. It is, because the whole musical is a dark, tragic comedy. I mean, you don't have you don't have jokes about someone beating up their girlfriend and have it be something that's got a good, clean heart. You just don't. And I remember, um, like, when I got, when I watched it on DVD and saw, like, I don't think I had seen, I don't think I saw the, like, original, like, the uh, full-on just shots of it. As Frank Oz talks about, well, you know, test audiences hate it hated it and it worked better for the musical space anyway because like you know because it was more of an interactive audience thing and uh now hearing this that feels like a cop-out explanation well what it came down to was if they didn't change the ending the movie would have sat on the shelf which would have been a shame yeah it was it was that much of a you change this and again that's not a small chunk of the film no. To some degree, parts of it were able to survive. Like, it wasn't all done that way. Like, Mean Green Mother was basically salvaged, except for, since Audrey was alive at that point in the number, they had some insert shots of her looking on. Uh, so they they did uh, they did have her die in the uh, original. Oh yeah, she dies before that number. Okay. And... They were able to have that work, and then, yeah, it, you know, they 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 changed it, um, and it's it's to their credit that they did a thorough enough job that this wasn't really thought of as a huge disaster in this kind of thing, because they did put a lot of effort into the reshoots. They didn't just slap something together. They tried. They tried to come up with a new genuine ending. That said. The interesting thing is what what came next, because, of course, with DVD, you suddenly have the freedom to put this stuff out. Uh, and in 1998, they did actually try to release. Uh, they It was a very sketchy, effects were unfinished. A work print. Version. That was all that they had. It was from a work print. And it was one of the first DVDs to be pulled for content because it wasn't approved. Like, I think, I don't know who it was that hadn't signed off on it. But they didn't want that. And so for years, this footage, it wasn't lost because, hello, Internet. Obviously, someone had a copy of the DVD. It was online. You could find it very easily. But it, it, was, it wasn't officially released. And then about 2011, 2012, they started working on, okay, we've got a cleaned up master of the original print. Let's, let's get that going. And that was released on DVD as the, it was going to be called the intended cut. And then Frank Oz did in fact sign off on it. And it is the director's cut. That's the version that I saw. That's the version that I watched. And 
I'm sorry, that original ending is perfect. It is very Roger Corman. It's very bleak. It's very darkly funny. But at the same time, I kind of understand that it might have been the difference between this being a cult film and not being a cult film. I really do believe that. I think that ending, it is so dark. I can see how it throws people away. I, I get it. I just don't prefer it. I, the ending I saw was perfect and great. And God, it has a great last shot. It it does. Which, that, that mimics the uh, original intent very well. Yeah. Picking up the director's cut, at least when I first uh, watched the film, and you could only watch the director's cut on DVD, which gave it the the uh, correct ending, but if you want to watch the theatrical version, you had to buy a separate DVD. But the Blu-ray for the director's cut gives you both options, which is the way to go for uh, at least owning it, in my opinion. Yeah, you yeah you're going to have it, you want both. It's been a journey for getting for getting to the actual finished form. I I just have some spare thoughts in my mind that are unrelated to this, but rather just the uh, having not seen the film in quite some time and revisiting it with a lot more uh, material under my belt. I'm kind of surprised how much... Like, there are traces of David Lynch in this. Yes, very much. Because, like, when you first uh, get to the plant, uh, I guess, being awake after Seymour uh, pricks his thumb and starts bleeding, you hear, like, those lips smacking in the exact same fashion as the damned baby from Eraserhead. Even, like, the same movements, too. I think Lynch... I think Lynch was one of those guys, he was so much in the zeitgeist of Hollywood at that point, it was inevitable. Yeah. And then, now granted, the the musical came out before this, but looking back on it, it's kind of not hard to draw comparisons of the dentist to Frank Booth from Blue Velvet. Because, like, you have that really sadistic nasty character that has a gas fetish and little shop more or less well i guess they gave us the friendlier version of it first before blue velvet at least by a year or so but yeah i guess this will segue into uh one of my sections but uh can we uh I, I would like to get an opinion from both of you. Right. Um, is this kid friendly? Yes. Yeah, like it. And I'll say the exact age group that I would think of. If a kid is reading Goosebumps, you show this to them immediately. Ah, there you go. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it has a lot more murder, but... Um... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> this is the Goosebumps audience, and it's perfect for them. They'll eat it up. 
Okay. Yeah. And it's I know the movie proper is PG thirteen, mm-hmm. but but you know PG thirteen has always been one of those. Well, I saw lots of PG thirteen movies before I was thirteen, so yeah, it just depends on the kid. Yeah, exactly and it, what Austin said. Yeah. Okay, because. Like I mentioned before, some parents were bringing their children to this. I mean, like, children that aren't reading Goosebumps. <laughs> and I'm I'm just kind of, because I had some of them sit next to me, and I'm just kind of sitting there like, so you're going to let your five-year-old really experience a, a light form of S&M? Okay, sure, go ahead. <laughs> God. I will, I will say like, and I will clear it with her before I put it on the final edit. Um, but I will say that uh, my girlfriend told me that uh, uh, she had nightmares as a kid <laughs> because her dad owned it. Oh boy. Okay, so moving from kids, there is one adaptation that is mostly forgotten. Mm, yes, I've been waiting for this. Yes, I guess like most properties from the 80s and 90s, uh, this got its own animated series. Yeah, a one-season run of 13 episodes. It's not exactly as remembered as uh, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Uh, no. Which I actually think that cartoon, for a lot of B-movie fans as adults was like a ground zero point for them. That was a good cartoon. Yeah, I, I and I can see that. This, however, um, well, let's start off by saying they completely fuck with the canon in that, um, okay, Seymour and Audrey and the dentist character are now kids, which... Well, that's that's messed up. Messed up, but also adheres to that youth trend that that you saw in the late '80s with like a pup named Scooby Doo, Flintstone Kids, Muppet Babies. Yeah, you know all all of that. But like, they're supposed to be middle schoolers in in theory. Um, the dentist character is uh, Seymour's main antagonist. He is the school bully. Uh, and is constantly wearing headgear that also functions as a utility knife. The fuck? And, like, he'll shoot, like, the little rubber bands that go with the braces here and there. Uh, Mr. Mushnick is still around, as well as Seymour's mom, who is now wearing a jazzercise outfit, but also doing the thing like Muppet Babies did, where you never see... You never see her face. Exactly, you never see her face. Um, And then we get to Audrey, who is rebranded as Junior. <sighs> and, uh... Junior Raps. Oh no.
I had you listen to this, Albert, okay? I, I sent you the clip of the theme song, and I want to get your reaction. Like, to what, that. Yeah, to that. What was your reaction to that? <sighs> I felt all sorts of feelings. Um, they were not comfortable feelings. They they really weren't. No, I felt I felt very awkward and um, off put. I think that's probably the best the best word to describe it is off putting, and just like oh no, like I went and I think I have to think would I have watched this as a kid and enjoyed it? And I think mm, probably in no way. No, no way. This lasted for maybe three months at best in late 1991 on uh, on Fox. And you see, I can tell you if I would have watched it because I was watching that kind of thing at that time. And I'm able to reference Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, which ran basically contemporaneous. Yeah. And I remember that much more clearly because that was actually funny. Yeah. Pretty good animation, too. Yeah, Little Shop's animation style, it tries to mimic the uh, UPA style. So, like, uh, like those cartoons like Gerald McBoyne Boyne and just kind of like the off-kilter line design and colors. It really doesn't work because it feels like they were trying to mimic, like, the line drawings from the original Little Shop movie. But it's not done successfully. I wondered about that. Yeah, I managed to uh, watch a couple of episodes. Um, This has not received a proper home media release, so uh, keep circulating the tapes. And someone thankfully did. You can find anything on there. The Bill and Ted cartoon is not available online in its entirety. Yeah, this... The episodes actually came with uh, Bill and Ted promos during the end credits. Yeah, because they, they did a weird they did a weird thing with that show where when uh, Fox did it, they used the actors that did it for the live action show that Fox did that nobody remembers for good reason. Um, however, the CBS run, you might be more familiar with the actors that they used because they used. Um, Reeves and Winter and Carlin. Seriously, the first season of the CBS season is the original three actors. It's actually worth seeking out just to get bonus performances of them in these roles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, each, uh, each episode is a musical. Of course. So there's like two musical numbers at best, and Junior uh, does all of his in rap form. None of it very good, and more or less comes off. I would say like the jive talking best best black friend, but since this is the '90s and hip hop was very much a hot commodity. Um, you know, just age, you know, just swap the characteristics and it's still the exact same thing, unfortunately. 
Not to mention a fuck ton of plant puns. Of course. I'm 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 looking at the voice cast for uh, Little Shop, and it's literally nobody you've ever heard of. Um, yeah. The closest they come is some of the additional voices are uh, Tara Cherendoff is listed as one of them. She would, of course, get a name change when she got married. And Don Franks. And that's it. Uh, Roger Corman does have his hands in this as a creative consultant, so... Oh, does he? Yes, he does. It's oh, it's worth noting, no. if you know where Corman was in 1991, this might be one of the best things he was involved in. Oh, no. Oh, the 90s were bad for him. Oh, I'm just, I'm looking at the episode titles, and uh, there's, of course, the very first one is named Bad Seed. And then uh, back to the fuchsia, ha 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 uh, Untitled Halloween story. It's a wonderful leaf. Mm. Tooth or consequences. Uh, Pulp Fiction. Married to the mush, which I assume is a reference to the shop owner. I probably. I stopped at. Uh, I stopped after Back to the Fuchsia. As you should. <laughs> I yeah. I, this is bad, and I feel bad for having learned this existed. It's sad that we're going to be talking about the remake, and now I feel like we're going to be stepping things up when we talk about well, the remake. Well, one thing, one last thing about Little Shop is that this is technically a Marvel property. Yes, it's by Marvel, Anime, Marvel Productions. Yep, Marvel Productions does feature their logo in the end credits with the... Uh, weird black Spider-Man suit just kind of lurking on top of the logo. It was weird, but yeah. Well, that's odd. Okay. Yeah, I'll 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 have to show you a, a picture of what it is because yeah. Yeah, but yeah, this is technically uh a Marvel, a Marvel thing. property. Yeah. It, oh, yes. Marvel should start a B studio where they just have all the uh, take all the different hodgepodge of properties they technically own and combine them. Yeah, kind of there a shame. You know. Audrey two wasn't in the uh, uh, cinematic <laughs> in universe, but uh, you know, <laughs> you do what you can. Hey, Howard the Duck is. So let's talk about the remake because there is a planned remake. Planned remake being the key. COVID has kind of put a little bit of a chill on it. And a lot say, of things. Would you say it's a plant remake? Huh. Go be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> Albert, I'm going to have to ask you to nip this in the bud. Ah! <laughs> yeah, cut me off at the stem, huh? Leaf this alone. <laughs> okay, let's 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 All right. let's. Uh, <laughs> one of the guys behind the um, what is it? The uh, Arrowverse is working on it. Uh, Greg Berlanti is going to direct. Um, as of right now, the cast is Taron Edgerton as uh, Seymour, and can I just say right off the bat, you've lost me with that casting. Oh, because he is not. He doesn't sell nebbish. That's just not something he does. It, he, it's like, how would you go from Rocket Man to this? Yeah. Yeah. Once you convincingly 
played Elton John, you can't do Nebish. Yeah. It's just, no. Um, then you've got um, Billy Porter will be uh, Audrey 2. And look, I've got nothing against that. I've got, got nothing against that. But, okay. Chris Evans will be, um, is apparently lined up to uh, play the dentist. And no, I, 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 I love Evans. No, I, I love him in co- comedic asshole mode. You can't, no. He's just not who I would go with. Like, you can't cast oh. Andy Dwyer in that part. Well, Chris Evans. This... Chris Chris Evans. Oh, oh, yeah. sorry. I, Captain America. I confused, Captain America. I confused Chris Pratt. Also, no. Yeah. <laughs> no. But, like, the only person I could see playing the dentist now would be Jake Gyllenhaal, only if he harnesses the energy from a sack lunch bunch. Nightcrawler. Sacklunch Bush. Yeah, that yes. energy. Much yeah. better. He yeah. just does crazy so well. Mysterio. You know, he was kind of harnessing that energy as Mysterio. Just, you know, crazed over the top. Yeah, no. Evans does douchebag. He doesn't do crazy. But then there's the casting that I swear to God is the reason you cannot make this movie. No. Scarlett Johansson is not Audrey. A million times over, no. She is talented. A, she can't really sing. Let's get that clear. B, this requires something that's just so not in her wheelhouse. And I'm, I'm not sure there is an actor that has that. Again, Ellen Green was just on another level in another planet in this movie. But I don't. Johansson sure as hell isn't. You're supposed to be able to play meek and weak, and that's something she cannot do. It's just not in her. I mean, Black Widow. I mean, yeah. It... No, that's what you cast her for. You cast her for, for cold intensity. You don't cast her for this. This, it, and, and I think it comes down to the fact that there's no reason to remake this. Nah. There's nothing about this version that that can be improved on. The music is great. The effects are astonishing. We didn't even talk about the effects, yeah. but that's because all I have to say about them is they're breathtaking. They are. Yeah. I would like. I would watch an entire documentary about how they how uh, they achieved that. I'm sure there are lots of scale models and whatnot, but a lot mm-hmm. of the shots looked like. Yeah, looked yeah. like uh, it was actual size. Yeah, there were, I want to say, at least six different models for the plant just for, uh, like, its growth cycle, as well as, well, with... They had different uh, sets. They had yeah, different a lot sets. of camera sets. Uh, wow. film, film rates as well, because uh, in order to make sure that the like the lip sync work they had to film at a slower rate whenever it was Rick whenever it was Rick Moranis and Audrey 2 on screen at the same time they did something similar for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh the turtles are shot just off and you can't tell it's invisible yeah yeah you really can't tell here because it the plant looks living and breathing and it's, it's flawless, alive 
And you know there's going to be a lot of CGI in the remake. And no, I fundamentally, again, I just fundamentally, this is a case where it's, we don't need another version of this. The version we have is fine. Look for the next version of this, not do a remake. Look for a musical that's like this and don't do this. Where's our Avenue Q movie? Yeah. yeah. God, yes. I take yes. that. I take that in a heartbeat. I love it. I love Avenue Q. I love Avenue Q so much. Um, or, you know, and we're also coming off of Hamilton. Why not get these musicals as musicals with the stage, you know, the stage production? Yeah, which I'd love that they did that for the Hamilton movie. It's just the original cast recording. And it works. What it what it comes down to is with Hamilton, your vision of the show isn't some half-assed movie star version. You're remembering the exact production precisely. If this shit matters, do that. I don't know. Just this movie is, and it's funny because, of course, this movie is technically all of those things. But shut up. A, again, they can't. They brought over the lead from the original musical and B, just shut up. Um, don't. But like, look for this. Look for the next version of this because I'm telling you, this this bangs. This is still a great, great watch. It's fast. You won't be bored for a second of it. Um, this movie kicks ass, and that's kind of all I've got to say. Yeah. Yeah. What is next on our on our list anyway? Our Christmas episode. We're going to be recording. An episode that will be our Christmas gift to y'all next. Yeah, it's a it's a Christmas gift that uh, it's been a long time coming. Mm-hmm. And it's related to one we've done before. So, cod's not bread, y'all. Cod's not bread. <laughs> there you go. All right, so you can you can uh, find us very easily. We're at theomniplex.org. On Twitter, we're at The Omniplex. Facebook, facebook.com slash The Omniplex. Also, there's a site called Podchaser where you can leave an easier review. Or if you're on iTunes, do that too. Like, basically anywhere you can find us, rate us. You know, it helps us out. And uh, that's it from us. Yeah. Well, bye-bye now. Bye, everybody. See you next time. Somewhere that's green. (laughs) You don't know what you're missing. So sit back and chill for a while. I'm coming at ya like Tomb Style. So get ready for a funny bone overload at the little shop. Yeah, boy, in full effect. Yo, the little shop posse is gaining respect. So break out before I put you in jail. Now, when you come to the shop, what you get and what you see. So just be careful. Getting close to me. Little shop, little shop. Take me to the.